Welcome to another edition of Garden Talk. Hi, Larry Mueller here. Great to have you with us today as we talk about vegetable growing today and zero in a bit here on the beet. And there's, if there's a beet guy at the UW-Madison, it's Erwin Goldman. He's one of our guests, professor in the Department of Horticulture at UW-Madison, one of our vicars of vegetables. He and Jim Nean, who used to be on quite regularly uh, to talk um, um, vegetables. And uh, Erwin's still here. And he's a plant breeder and runs a breeding program in carrots, onions, and table beets. And Erwin, good to have you back. Larry, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming. Uh, with us as well, Adam D'Angelo. Adam is a student at U- uh, just finished his master's degree, as a matter of fact, at UW-Madison. And he is working as well on improving flavor and the eating quality in the beet. Adam, welcome to you. Thank you for having me. So as we talk with these two guys, I hope you'll join in with your own questions uh, or comments as we talk about breeding and beets and maybe onions and carrots and other things as well. I hope you'll join in. What do you want to know about the new variety that they've got? We'll talk about that today for sure. Maybe you've had trouble growing beets. Uh, how, do you, how can we help you with your vegetable garden? Give us a call. The number is 1-800-642-1234. It's 800 800- Six four two one two three four. Email us to ideas at wpr.org. Ideas at wpr.org. Erwin, what attracts you to the beat? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's such an underappreciated, uh, old-fashioned vegetable uh, in some ways. You know, it, you look at it and you think. Uh, the huddled masses of our ancestors and their their old-style foods, but. There's something about its earthiness. There's something about its its color, its intensity, uh, its beauty. Uh, that really, I find, it has grown on me over the years that I've worked on it. And today, I find it to be just one of the most excellent foods that I could imagine in the vegetable yeah. world. Well, you know, I always think about nutritional value, and I I always think, well, the darker the vegetable, mm-hmm. typically, mm-hmm. in my own head. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more nutritional value. Is that true? Beets Indeed pretty good? it is. Indeed it is. I mean, not only do beets have uh, a lot of uh, folic acid and other B vitamins in their foliage, but the, the red pigment that is in the root has a number of very significant nutritional properties. And some of that has been backed up by peer-reviewed science. And Adam, I, I'm sure as a young man of five or six, you thought, I, I want to be a beet researcher someday. <laughs> no, maybe not. How did you get interested in uh, this research? Well, you know, we're kind of in pe- what people are calling a beet renaissance now. You know, it's no longer your grandmother's pickled beets. You go to the grocery store and you find beet juice and beet chips and beet this, beet that. So it's really an exciting time because people are starting to rediscover uh, ways to make their food more diverse and to increase their nutrient intake. Um, and Irwin has just been really a champion of that cause. And some of the new beets he's releasing and, and really the, the way that he's looking at breeding going forward is sort of a, a paradigm shift in a lot of the way that we've been producing our food. So it's been really exciting to uh, watch what he's been doing and, and be a part of it. And Erwin, I, you may have told me this once. I mean, you, one of your original thoughts about studying the beets, which has been, what, 30 years now? Yes, it has. 
is that nobody else was really doing any research in this area. That's right. You know, my predecessor, Warren Gobelman, uh, started a program just after World War II to improve table beets. And, of course, we have a big canning industry in Wisconsin, and yeah. they're, a, they're, a, they're a key canning crop. Um, and uh, this became the only publicly supported beet program in the country, and still is to this day. And so it, it does feel like uh, there's a lot of work to be done, and, and anything you do is useful. But also, I think, as Adam pointed out, the beet has taken on a lot, the people have become a lot more interested in this food. So I noticed there are more people now starting to get interested in working on it, much more interest in the private sector as well. Is that good for you, do you think? Or? I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful because part of part of the work that we do as plant breeders requires collaboration, uh, collaborating with, with people who are doing pathology and entomology and people who are in farming, people who are in processing. The more people involved, the, like, the greater the likelihood that we'll make more progress in our breeding work. And when you, you know, the, the format that you take or, you know, when you're, you're looking for a better, you were looking for a better tasting beef, for example. Hi. Yeah, we, we were. You know, one of the most common comments that I had when I first started my work here is, hey, you know, can you do anything about the fact that they taste like dirt? <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I, frankly, I, I understand that comment. And I, I want to maybe start by apologizing to everybody out there who is listening who likes the earthiness of, of, of the vegetable. Yeah. I like, personally, I like the earthiness of beets and spinach and chard and other foods that have that kind of a taste, kind of an earthy taste. But but what I learned was that many people are completely turned off by that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, and, and I, I learned about that just from talking to people around the state at farmer's markets and, and everywhere I went. I also learned about it from my own kids who, when they were little, they, you know, it wasn't something we could feed them as a snack. <laughs> uh, and, and it got, it got us interested. And I want to, I want to mention uh, Nick Breitbach, who was my close colleague in the breeding program for many years. Nick is, Nick retired in 2007, but he and I worked together in the Department of Horticulture for many years. And we, we wondered if we could actually make a beat that was a, a more palatable for those people who hated the earthiness. Yeah. Why not? Right. And the problem with that question was that we didn't understand at the time what makes a beet earthy. We thought it was the fact that it was growing in the soil. The earthiness is due to a, a molecule called geosmin, which means earth scent. And it is the smell of soil. Everybody know. Everybody who's listening to this program knows the smell of soil. It's something we are, you know, we all know. We put a shovel in the earth. You turn the earth. You get that incredible scent. That's that's geosmin that you're smelling, and it's produced by bacteria in the soil. So we didn't understand the relationship between geosmin produced by soil microbes and this the taste of this vegetable. And taste itself, I, I mean, you know, one person's taste might be different from it, as you actually were pointing out earlier. So how did you go about the business of finding one that's going to taste the way more people would like it to taste? Right. I mean, that took—plant uh, breeding is 
one of the uh, it requires more patience than many, <laughs> many activities that I've been involved in. Sometimes I call it the slowest of the performing arts. It is it a very long. So Nick and I started that work in 1995. And it wasn't until fairly recently that we developed something that could be a, a new variety on the market. So think about how long that takes, twenty more than 20 years, really, to do that work. And to do that requires choosing parents that you think have uh, are palatable and have good taste. It requires you tasting a lot of beets, crossing them, making new combinations, and then continuing to select for the ones that are, are the most palatable. And you have to do that year after year after year. And you can't do it just from your own taste buds. Correct. Correct. It's, you know, everybody is... Is, is that what Adam did, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I'm to let Adam talk about the kind of... Adam is actually... What's so cool about Adam's work, and I'm sure he's going to talk about it, is it wasn't until 20 years later that we learned and developed the analytical techniques to actually measure the flavor traits. Like, Nick and I were doing it by tasting. Yeah. It's, it's one way to do it, but it's not... It's not as efficient as having an instrument in the lab where you can actually measure these compounds. And so that's really where Adam's work comes in. It's, it, you can, it, we almost did it backwards, but, we, but at the time we started, we didn't have the technology yet to actually measure these things. You had to have worked with, I would assume, chefs and so forth, too. That was a huge help. And I honestly, I have to say that one of the most important things I learned from this whole process was what today we call participatory breeding, that breeding can't or maybe isn't as effective when we do it in isolation by ourselves as plant breeders. We yeah. need to work with, with not only yeah. with farmers and gardeners, but also with people like chefs and other culinary professionals. Yeah. Because uh, things that I would taste or try didn't have enough experience to know where they might be useful. And so the partnerships there have been one of the most instrumental things that we've developed. Yeah. Well, Adam, talk about your role in your work. Sure. So just like what Erwin was saying, uh, consumer preference is a really elusive thing to pin down because it's influenced by so many factors. You know, it, in addition to your personal genetics, whether you can taste something, it's, it's also, did you grow up eating beets? <laughs> Uh, did you did you have a really bad experience with beets as a kid? Did you have a bad morning? You know, are are you tired that day? You know, did you drink a cup of coffee and you can't taste the bitter compounds? Are you a smoker and you can't taste other compounds? Uh, so, getting data from individual people, while it's really valuable, is incredibly difficult to get good, reliable, repeatable data. So, a lot of my project was oriented at finding new ways to measure flavor without having to take a bite out of every beet in the field. So. <laughs> So I felt like it was pretty important. Um, what we were doing is we were taking samples of the beets and we were putting them through laboratory equipment to measure three important compounds that we felt uh, influenced the liking of beets quite a bit uh, in consumers. So the three compounds, we talked about one already that was geosmin, and that's uh, that's the smell you smell after a yeah. rainstorm, the smell of dirt. Um, and so quite literally, beets do taste like dirt. Uh, so that one really had a big impact. But another one that was important was oxalic acid. And if you've ever had the pleasure of biting into a raw beet, Larry, I'm sure you realize <laughs> that uh, it burns the back of your throat. <laughs> and that's a result of tiny little oxalate crystals that are actually making tiny scratches in your throat. Uh, and in addition to having an unpleasant mouthfeel, they also contribute to lower calcium bioavailability, and they can increase your risk for kidney stone formation if you eat a lot of oxalates. So we had to figure out a new way to measure oxalic acid in beets, uh, a much cheaper way than we were using. And then we had to also measure the sugar in beets. And uh, 
traditionally, especially like winemakers, use something called bricks through a refractometer. You've probably, mm-hmm. maybe you've heard of it. So uh-huh. it's the measure of the total dissolved solids in it. And that's what we've been using for beets. Um, but a lot of my research was sort of aimed at proofreading some of these concepts we're using to make sure that we're using accurate ways to measure. <laughs> and we found out that uh, maybe bricks wasn't the best way to measure <laughs> sugar in beets. So we're having to work on some new methods there. Our guests uh, today, Erwin Goldman and Adam D'Angelo, both from the University of Wisconsin. Erwin, a professor in the Department of Horticulture. Adam just finished up his master's. He's going to be a PhD student, right? Are you going to? Not yet. (laughs) Thinking that way, though. Yeah, yeah, thinking that way a bit. Uh, And we've started talking about beets. I hope you'll join in with your questions at 1 800 642 1234. Email to ideas at wpr.org. Stick a call. Jim and Hollandale, thanks for calling. Uh, what's on your mind? Um, first of all, I'm going to vote on the side of leaving the taste of dirt in beets because <laughs> that's wonderful. I mean, that's just the most wonderful thing. And as far as smelling the soil, I'm a retired dairy farmer, and, and always in the spring when I was plowing, and I just couldn't stand it anymore down the meadow, I'd stop the plow and stop, shut the tractor off, and I'd get off the tractor and go behind the plow and lay down the dead furrow and just smell the dirt. Oh, it was just wonderful. Uh, Jim, I love that. Erwin, a comment. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, Thank you for sharing that story. And I'm with you 100%. That's, in fact, one of the things I love about the vegetable. Uh, And so I do feel a bit of guilt about working on de-beating the beet. I don't, you know, but on the other hand... If, if more people could consume the vegetable, you know, I guess in, in some ways we can gain from that. But I, I so appreciate your story. Jim, thanks you. thank you so much for calling. Appreciate your call. Again, you can join in 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at WPR.org. Jill Nadeau's our producer, by the way. Aubrey Ralph, our engineer. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Great to have you along for Garden Talk. Larry Mueller here with my guest, Erwin Goldman, professor in the Department of Horticulture at UW-Madison, a plant breeder, runs a breeding program on, oh, carrots, onions, and table beets. We've zeroed in a bit on table beets, in part because Adam D'Angelo with us as well. He's done a lot of work on it, too. Just finished his master's degree working on improving flavor and eating quality in the table beat. So again, questions for them, join in 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at wpr.org. Let's take a call from Kel in Sugar Camp. Hi, Kel. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I, I have, I have uh, three questions about beets. I, I adore beets, but um, they're very hard to uh, peel. They're slippery, and you get all stained in your hands. And do they slip their skins if you cook them? And can you cook them in the microwave? Mm-hmm. Okay. Great questions. Uh, thanks for for asking that, Kale. You know, the way that I tend to do it is is boil them, uh, put them in some boiling water for a couple of minutes, you know, so that loosens their skins. And then you take them out of the boiling water, sometimes just running some cold water over them as you use a peeler, and sometimes their skins will just slip right off, you know, once you once you take them out of that hot water. 
and run some cold water over them. So sometimes you don't even need the peeler. That's the way I, I have been doing it. But Adam, Larry? Yeah, what is, well, let's go to Adam first. Well, I mean, the betalin pigment, it's water-soluble. So I've looked at it, or even if it stains your hands or your clothes, just throw them in the wash and you're all good to go. <clears throat> so I've been using the traditional peeling method. Yeah, that's I've actually that's what I've done too, and I have to say that my f favorite way to eat meats is grilled. Mm. I love grilled meats, mm -hmm. and I've I've mentioned this on the show in the past, but I can remember we had a listener party, WPR listener party once, and. Mad Dog and Merrill, the grilling buddies, um, brought uh, you know an array of vegetables, and there were some beets there. And he said, "You watch. The first things to go will be the beets." <laughs> and people would take like one piece, and then they'd come back and get some more. And he, they were right. The first thing mm -hmm. to completely go, and I think it's because. Well, it's a taste that you, you just don't associate with beets. Is that the sugar? I think yes. intensifies or something. And the beet has, you know, it has eight, nine, ten percent sugar in the root. So when yeah. you when you when you grill it like that, those sugars are coming out, and they're going to be fantastic. Oh, I, I love it that way. Mm -hmm. So, Cal, thank you very much, Mike and Lake Mills. Uh, what's on your mind? Yeah. Good morning. Can you hold for me? Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, we would have beets, and I liked them, but I noticed that right after, if I had a glass of milk, it was really bitter. And I'm wondering if you guys have come up with why that is or if, in fact, that's just my own weird genetic thing. Hmm. hmm. I, don't know that I, I don't know that I could answer that one. Well, uh, let's see. I, I, the beets do have some bitter compounds in them, some of them. that There's saponins, mm -hmm. and that's a, that's a bitter compound, but I'm not sure why you're tasting it in the milk. Well, if you, I think he tastes... I'm not sure, Mike. Were you drinking milk and then eating afterwards, eating the beets? No, if you if you had the beets first and then you follow with a glass of milk, the milk didn't taste good. Oh yeah, so some of that bitterness probably remained in your mouth. Mm -hmm. And you know those saponins, I believe, are fat soluble, and and milk is a fatty liquid. Mm -hmm. So maybe you were just redissolving the bitter compounds then mm -hmm. tasting them again. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that's. That's a good. That's a good reason. That's probably the reason, Mike. Thanks, very much for uh, calling, uh, Stephen Green Bay. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Um, good morning. Just enjoying your show and um, wanted to just share with listeners that my favorite way to um, eat beets is to include them in some juice. Um, so I make my own juice with. Um, with apples and carrots and beets and a little bit of ginger, and uh, it's amazing and and fairly healthy. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds really healthy to me. Absolutely, and that that really, uh, as Adam pointed out before, uh, recently the, the there's been a surge in interest in beet juice, both as a as a just a juiced product, like you said, and your your combination sounds fantastic, uh, but also athletes have gravitated towards beet juice. Partly because uh, the way that the pigments affect nitric oxide metabolism and the you know uh, for for the for um, for cardiovascular health, so it's both a, it's both become a a, a a really nice drink and also one used by people interested in athletic performance. Yeah, absolutely, Steve. Uh, thank you very much for that. Really, did sound like a good juice. <laughs> so, is apples, apples, beets, beets carrots, carrots, and ginger. 
Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Uh, Jill emailed that she had just read that beet seeds need light to germinate. Is that true? And if not, what's the best way to get them to germinate? Beet seeds. Well, um, the beet seed, uh, I'm not sure that light is absolutely necessary to germinate. They will, if, if they will imbibe water, uh, they will begin to swell. And you'll see the the emergence of of a little a little radical there. So I, I don't know that they absolutely need light to germinate. Okay. All right. There we go. Uh, so you can get away with water. Yeah. Okay. Jill, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Elizabeth emailed to ask if you have a good recipe for veggie burgers that incorporate beets. <laughs> uh, she's hoping to find the ultimate veggie burger recipe. Have you ever done veggie burgers? Either one of you. I haven't, but the beets add a good, you know, good hue to it. So even if you put just a little bit in to get that nice color in there, I think it's important. Yeah. And I think beet juice is used in some of the processed, in some of the uh, veggie burgers as well to give a little color to the to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would think so. Uh, I, w- I would definitely think so. How do you like it, beets, best? You know, my, my wife over the years has come up with this way of doing it, which involves uh, sort of uh, make cubing them after after they've been blanched for a couple of minutes in the boiling water, maybe cutting them into cubes, putting them into a Pyrex a glass dish in the oven with a little olive oil and salt and roasting them. So it's yeah. basically oven roasted root vegetables. And I do that. We do that with carrots and parsnips and yeah. potatoes. That's our favorite way to have them. Yeah. What about you, Adam? I mean, that's the best way. Once he showed us that, I think everyone in the lab transitioned <laughs> to cooking them that way. <laughs> yeah. Sort of like uh, my grilling method. Yes. Yeah. They, you know, the, the, the searing of them, yeah. in the, whether it's in the oven or whether it's on the grill, brings out that that uh that sweetness yeah and and it and it's just a fantastic way i've got one of these um well it's not a plate of kind of a metal plate with a bunch of holes in the bottom mm-hmm. but the beets won't fall through and you put them on there and then put them in the grill on yeah. the grill and you get that effect fantastic yeah. steven wonderlake illinois hi hi there good morning gentlemen i've got a comment on this tasting milk after beets I believe our taste buds probably have a fatigue uh, effect, much like our, our smell does. Once you've been in a, in a home or a building that has a smell, you don't smell it after a while until you come back. And so I could think that uh, eating the beef with whatever the various chemicals and enzymes are in there could have a uh, you know, fatigue effect, and our taste buds uh, become used to that taste, and then you taste something else, and you just notice a tremendous difference. Yeah. That could very well be. What an interesting observation. I think, yeah, I think you're on to something there, Steve. Thank you very much for calling. Appreciate it. You can join in, too, by the way. Number to call, 1-800-642-1234. Email to ideas at wpr.org. And you can help Elizabeth out, too, if you have a recipe for veggie burgers that incorporate beets. We've talked in general about it, but if you have one that you use, I'd love to hear that as well, because I might write that down and use it myself. <laughs> why, why not? Let's talk about, here we haven't even talked about the badger flame mm-hmm. yet, which is that new beat. Right. So uh, we, you know, over the, over the years of 
trying to select for low earthiness, which also, by the way, included selection for low levels of oxalic acid. So it's it's not gritty and it doesn't cause that bad mouthfeel. It's low in earthiness and you taste the sugar. We ended up creating a, a, a new variety called Badger Flame. And Badger Flame, first of all, is, is oblong. It almost takes the shape of a sweet potato. Hmm. And beets, beets uh, actually have a variety of shapes. There are just not very many varieties in the marketplace today that you can find that are other than round. Yeah. But uh, gardeners will recognize flat shapes. Uh, some of them may recognize cylindrical-shaped beets. And so, in fact, there's a variety of shapes. We, we chose the, the oblong shape because we like the way it works in the kitchen when you're holding the beet or when you're peeling it or you're working with it. It's, a, it's an easier thing to hold on to than something yeah. that's spherical. It also has in it a kind of swirl of red and yellow pigments, which, really is, why, which is why it got its name Flame. And, and maybe many listeners will realize that when you're looking at a red beet... It's actually both red and yellow. You simply cannot see the yellow color. The yellow pigment makes up about 20 to 25% of the color in a regular red beet. You just can't see it because it's masked by this intensity of red. But the yellow is beautiful. And so by dialing back the red and increasing the yellow, we're almost like painting with the, with the, with the yeah. vegetable be able to make something that has a kind of yellow and red swirl in it. And that's the badger flame. So it's got this unusual shape. It's got the color swirl. And then it has this this uh, low earthiness and low oxalate so that you can you can taste the sweetness. And, and in fact, you can eat it just like a, like a raw, crunchy, sweet root vegetable. So like a carrot. Like you're... a carrot. <laughs> and actually, that was one of the thoughts was, could you make something, could you breed something mm-hmm. that a kid would take in their lunchbox, you know? Yeah. And who would ever think of a kid taking a beat to school in a lunchbox? You wouldn't think of that. But here, maybe if you made them into little sticks or cubes, it could be something that you eat fresh. And with the the name, you know, if I had my lunchbox, somebody said, well, what's that? And I said, well, that's, they call it Badger <laughs> Flame. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, what kid would say, you know, badger flame? I got some badger flames with me. Uh, I think about some of the names of fish that have uh, that were terrible sounding names and then they were renamed. And suddenly they were in restaurants all over the, uh, because they, they now have, uh, they have new names. Oh, and I imagine, how, how are these badger flames fine? Finding their way to restaurants, they're, I bet. They are. They're, they're just started over the last couple of years. Uh, they started to appear in, in some restaurants, uh, on some menus. They started to appear in some grocery stores and in farmer's markets. And one of the things about any specialty vegetable, and I would call this a kind of a specialty one sure. because it's a, it's something that you know is a, is, is a smaller market at its start. It takes a while for it to catch on. So farm, more farmers, more gardeners are growing it uh, each year. And seed is now available from several different seed companies. So as that goes, and word of mouth, uh, it'll it'll spread. And I bet when it's sold, a lot of if you just cut it, if you had one that was cut open, so people could see right. what it looks like. 
I mean, because it's really attractive. Well, thank you, Larry. And it is it, uh, one of the seed companies that sells it. Uh, the company is called Rose Seven, and they did a promotion uh, this past late fall in Boston. And they went to grocery stores. I think twenty-two grocery stores in the Boston area, and they had people cut it open in yeah. the in the store. And I think then that then you can sort of see this unusual looking thing. Yeah, uh, for sure. Ray and. Um Gutenberg? Gutenberg? Ray, are you there? I'm here, yes. Hi, where are you from? They say it as Gutenberg, I believe. Oh, Gutenberg, okay. Thank you for calling. What's on your mind? I was wondering why you haven't mentioned the beet tops or the beet green. <laughs> I adore beets, and I love the tops as much as the bottoms. When I choose them, that's as important to me as the bottom root. Interesting, and how do you fix them? I simply saute the tops in a little water, and they cook in just a very few minutes, mm. and you don't have to do a thing to them. I eat them just the way they are. They're sweet and delicious. Mm. I totally agree with you. They are also an underappreciated part of this plant. And I notice in some parts of the country, beet greens are sold at farmer's markets just like many other vegetables. Whereas in other places, people don't even recognize that the greens are so fantastic and so edible. If you I think... believe that, yes. In some stores, they threw them away. And I would always see if I could buy those tops they cut off. <laughs> exactly. They are just, I think they're fantastic. And of course, you know, the beet is a very close cousin to the Swiss chard. And Swiss chard is, is essentially, the tops of Swiss chard is, is essentially the same as the beet tops. It's a great vegetable. Yeah. Ray, thank you very much for calling. Appreciate it. Well, let's go. Fritz in New Glarus. Hi. Hello, this is Fritz. Hi. I have a beet beet veggie burger recipe. Okay. I am um, not at home, so I don't have a recipe right in front of me, but generally it's um, chopped up beets and oatmeal and walnuts. And I would say equal parts beets and oatmeal, and then about half of that same amount of walnuts. And then I usually use Italian seasoning, salt and pepper, and you just blend it in the food processor till it's mm. like a consistency of a patty. And then you can bake them or put them in a frying pan, and they're delicious. Wow. And, that, so the, and they bind? How do you bind them? The oatmeal will bind it. Oh, the oatmeal. Okay. No egg or anything. Nope. Okay. Nope. Pure veggie. Pure veggie. I don't know. It sounds are very water high, as you know. Mm -hmm. So um, they have to be pretty dense as a patty because they will still get very, very loose when you're baking them mm -hmm. or frying them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I chop beets, oatmeal, walnuts, some Italian seasoning, salt and pepper. The beet-walnut combination is a classic. That sounds really good, actually. <laughs> Thank you, Fritz. I appreciate uh, that call. And uh, Linda in Madison has a question. Hi, Linda. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I have a way that works really well for me so that I, my hands and the cutting board and everything don't get all red and stay that way for a while. Yeah. And that's just, I make sure that the, my wood cutting board is wet on the top and my hands are wet and the knife is wet and the um, peeler is wet. And um, 
so I usually, most of the time, I peel the beet first and then cut it into like bite-sized pieces mm-hmm. and then put it in my pressure cooker. And if if they're half-inch or a little bigger pieces, it takes 45 seconds at high pressure. And if they're a little bigger bite size, then probably more like a minute high pressure. But it doesn't take any time at all. And and then my hands and the cutting board and everything, they just they wash off pretty much pretty well, as long as they're wet to begin with. Yeah. Well, that makes some sense to me. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, if the, the pigments are water-soluble, so any water keeps them from soaking in. Yeah, that makes very good sense. Thanks, Linda. Uh, Mike in Manaqua, your turn. Hi, Mike. Hi, Larry. Hi, how you doing, Larry? Good, appreciate um, the call. Two questions. One is, uh, do pickled beets that you can usually buy at the grocery, do they lose their nutritive value or do they have the same nutritive value as fresh beets? And secondly, I live in an apartment. How are beets when you grow them in a container? Hmm. Good, very good questions. Uh, the first one about pickling, you know, um, they will still retain a lot of their nutritional value, if not all of it. I, I suppose one thing to consider is if they're how how cooked they are before you put them into a pickling brine. But uh, by and large, the pickling is a great way to preserve them and to preserve their nutritional content. I love pickled beets. <laughs> I just absolutely love pickled beets. And the other question, um, container, growing in containers. You know, it's always difficult to grow good root vegetables in containers. I mean, I, I would say if I, I've tried to grow carrots in containers, that's, that can be tough. Beet is one that I think is beet and radish are going to be a little bit easier. I think you will succeed at it. You do need to thin them, right? So if you put them in a container, and even, by the way, if you put one seed in there, that can produce three, four, five individual plants. You'll need to thin them back. But as long as you do, I think you can still do a good job of producing a root crop in a container like beet. And make sure they get plenty of light, um, for sure. Yeah, I don't see why... Why wouldn't they? They do. Yeah, I've just certain root crops, especially ones that have a very elongated taproot, like carrot, are tough to to grow in containers. Yeah. But uh, but beet it doesn't. Beet doesn't. Beet beet grows more horizontally. It swells like this, and it does better in a container. And uh, I was just thinking about straw bales. You know. Have you, you ever tried to grow a beet in a straw bale? No, I haven't, but I was thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you would need some soil to get it started. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's you you need soil for those kinds of crops uh, in a, in that straw bale kind of situation. But then once they're going, well, what about taking a, a beet transplant? Because beet transplants do very well. Could you take a beet transplant into uh, a straw yeah. bale? Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. It probably work. Mm-hmm. Oh, Mike, I hope that answered your question. Thank you so much for calling. You can join in, too. Number to call, 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at wpr.org. Dan emailed to say he, he always wondered if beets could be used to make alcohol, and if so, if the red color would end up in the distilled alcohol. Absolutely. 
Yeah, you can. I mean, sugar beet, of course, has been used. Sugar beet extract's been used to ferment. It's, got, it's full of sugar. It's a great thing to ferment. Same with the table beet. You could make beet wine, and I have a feeling if you made some beet wine, it would be a beautiful color. Yeah, I would think. What do you think? I've made beet wine before, yeah. Oh, it's you have? Really yeah, you got to keep it out of the sunlight because the sunlight will photodegrade that red pigment into a brown pigment, mm-hmm. and then it's hard to get people to drink your brown <laughs> wine. So <laughs> You want to be using a, a dark bottle then. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and there's our, uh, there's uh, beet liquor available. There's mm-hmm. commercial vodka made with beets, uh, and that's, that's well marketed around. So I think you're definitely onto something here. So now, what's uh, how would you characterize the wine? Is it um, uh, does it have the character of? I'm just trying to think of a wine, um, like a dark red, a medium red, a light red. Uh, it's definitely it's earthy. I'll tell you that. So the, the origin of this this is an ancient. This is a medieval recipe because peasants uh, couldn't afford fruit. Fruit was very expensive to make wine, so they looked for something with high sugar content, and what they found was beet, and you could make an alcoholic beverage out of that and got the same effects as it, but it doesn't quite taste like wine. <laughs> okay. Well, Jim and Delavan has a, or Jan, excuse me, and Delavan has a question. Let's go there. Hi, Jan. Not, not really a question. Um, I was think, thinking about your, the caller that wanted to grow beets in containers. Yeah. And haven't, don't people sometimes grow at least potatoes in like a sack of, a sack of dirt? You know, that they bought. Sure. And would that grow? I mean, would that solve some of the problems of beets or growing any vegetable in a sort of a container? I mean, yeah. a sort of controlled, a controlled environment, anyway. I, I think so. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, I, I, you know, there are bags out there you can buy to grow vegetables in. So why not beets? I, I would think so. Thanks, Jan. Susan and Madison, your turn. Hi, Susan. Hi, Larry. This is Susan Porter. Oh, hi, Susan. Good to hear your voice. It's Well, I just appreciate your show so much and look forward to it every day. And when I listened that you were talking about beets, I thought I needed to call in because, well, I've had a big vegetable garden for decades and decades. One of my favorite things that I grow is the beet. I'm so fond of that earthy flavor. I absolutely love it and i grow lots of beets every year and they last from the first um harvesting in the spring till the they're covered with frost in the fall and i i uh, just wanted to say that the way i prepare them i think intensifies their sweetness and that is i roast the beet in tinfoil and um there's something about the roasting uh, that's, and, I, and I leave it in the tinfoil to cool afterwards. Then when I take the tinfoil off, the, the beet skin just falls off, just can be rubbed off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I put them in the fridge and either use them as, uh, in salads or warm them up to use them, um, you know, as a, as a dinner dish with just simple butter and, and salt. Uh, and they're just absolutely wonderful. And as far as the staining is concerned, uh, yep, <laughs> they will stain yeah. everything. So I use, you know, I fix them over the sink and I use rubber gloves. Yeah. So 
uh, it's not only your hands that they stain, just uh, for people that are new to beat, <laughs> just don't worry at, when you use the bathroom because they stain every bodily fluid that, that your body can produce. So um, you're fine. You're not uh, internally hemorrhaging. Um, but I, yeah, I just love beets. And, I, and, and what I do is I just plant them by seeds every very early spring. And then I, um, I thin them, and then the, the, the little tiny beet, beet greens that I pull out are just wonderful in salads for, for beet greens. So that's kind of the way I, I harvest my beets is that I, you know, plant them at the whatever, two inch or inch and I think I guess it's about an inch apart. But it's, for me, it's usually not measured, and it's closer than that. So I just pick them out as they grow and use them as beet greens. And then I also further thin them out as they get larger to use the beet greens because they're lovely. They're wonderful in salads or just sautéed. Um, and, oh, and as they get bigger, they can be chopped up and used as spinach in with uh, beans and ve- other vegetables that you might be preparing. So anyway, I'm a big fan of the beet, and I love the hearty hardiness of the of the some of those original old uh, varieties like the Detroit dark reds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's my favorite, um, and that is a robust flavor, but it's delicious. And if you roast them in tinfoil, they'll really sweeten right up for you. Thank you, Susan. And I, I will say that I have tasted Susan's uh, cooking at one point or another. So it's been a long, long time, but she's a pretty good cook. So, <laughs> But I like, what, what do you think of her method of the tinfoil? It's a great idea. Yeah, and the roasting is, is still the, my, my favorite, too. So I completely appreciate that. Yeah, thank you, Susan. Appreciate your call very much. Well, you can join in, too, uh, in this edition of Garden Talk. We've zeroed in quite a bit on beets with Erwin Goldman, professor in the Department of Horticulture, Adam D'Angelo, a graduate student at the UW-Madison, just finished his master's working on improving flavor and eating quality uh, in the table beet. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. You're listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here with my guest, Erwin Goldman, professor in the Department of Horticulture at UW-Madison. He's a plant breeder, and he runs breeding programs on carrot, onion, and table beet. With him uh, in the studio and with me, Adam D'Angelo, a a student at UW-Madison, just finished his master's degree, and he has been working with Erwin on, on improving flavor and eating quality in the table beet. Uh, Irwin's developed a new beet. It's called the Badger Flame, or Badger Flame, I guess. And it was created by crossing two other beets. And it has kind of taken out that earthiness. A lot of people have called it to say, I like the earthiness, (laughs) but there are those who don't. And I tell you, it's a really pretty, pretty beet as well as taking away some of that earth taste that uh, some people find objectionable. Anyway, join in 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at wpr.org. Connor in Fort Atkinson will give you a chance. Hi, Connor. 
Hi, just a, an observation. Three or four years in a row when I planted the beets, um, the deer will come all the way across the field. They will walk over every single other vegetable that is, that is coming up, start on one end of the beet row and eat their way, taking every single shoot out for about 100 lineal feet. So I have to stage my planting. I don't know what the deer know that we don't know, but uh, three or four years in a row it happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry that happened to you, but I can we we can share in the misery of that experience because the deer eat our beets in our experimental fields as well. They can they can find them, and of course, I think it's all about sugar. The beet is full of sugar. Some of the other vegetables are you know lovely in their own way, but not as sweet. And the deer will find them. Yeah, and uh, and but it you know it doesn't. It, it doesn't surprise me in a way because of the amount of sugar in that root. Uh, rodents, too, will um, will find many beets in our fields that have been chewed by mice and nothing else. It's actually one of the ways in plant breeding we could select for sweetness is just let the find the ones with the rodent, <laughs> the teeth marks in it, the teeth marks in them. Oh, Connor, thanks. Uh, appreciate that call. Uh, Joe and Wasso's got a, a bit different question, I think. Joe, hi. Good morning. Not about beets. I got a question about onions. When you go in a grocery store, you see yellow onions, and right next to it will be something to call sweet onions. They both look the same, and there is a big difference. I get indigestion for regular onions, but if I buy the sweet onions, uh, I don't get indigestion from them. It, that's right. That's right. It's a great, it's a fantastic product. So is your question about what is the sweet onion and how do you make that? Or what's yeah, the difference and what's the difference between the sweet and white? Yeah. So the sweet onion or the mild onion, and some people know them by the name Vidalia or Texas sweet. Uh, these are coming up from Georgia, Texas, and, and even outside of the country, is an onion that's grown in, in low sulfur soils. Uh, so these soils will have low levels of sulfur, and the onion itself is a cultivar, is a type of onion that takes up very little sulfur as well. So we're controlling the flavor of the onion. The farmer is controlling the flavor of the onion by growing a certain type in a certain kind of soil. And what that does is it makes a vegetable that has very low levels of pungency and lower levels of flavor. It then reveals the sugar that's in the bulb. So that's why they're called sweets. All onions have a lot of sugar in them. It's just that you cannot taste the sweetness of a pungent onion because you're overwhelmed by the sulfur compounds that are present there. So the sweet onion is really one that has reduced that uh, those sulfur compounds, making it much more palatable. It's always funny when uh, uh, you're watching on TV and, and some of chef is saying, well, now we'll... Uh, I've got a really simple recipe, and then the first thing they do is they're cutting up, cutting up a big onion. <laughs> I think it's not easy to cut up a big. We are sitting there crying and right. <laughs> everything else while it's going on. Joe, so there, there's the difference, Joe. Thank you for, very much for uh, calling. Appreciate your call. Uh, Tom emailed, said there's an article in the New York Times that said beets were better eaten raw to get the most vitamins. And wonders, etc., is and wonders if that's true. I mean, there are there are certain vitamins uh, in plants and vegetables that are sensitive to heat and sensitive yeah. to cooking and will be destroyed by cooking. And there are others that are more durable to cooking. 
And there are even some, there's a couple of cases of vitamins that are actually more available to us. They're greater in their availability once you cook. Is that right? An example of that would be beta carotene in, huh? the, in the carrot or, or lycopene in the tomato, the red color in the tomato, uh -huh. the orange color in the carrot. When you cook, you actually create you actually make that more bioavailable. You liberate that molecule from its matrix and you make it more bioavailable. But most, many nutrients, the caller is correct, many nutrients do get degraded by cooking. C is one, isn't it? C is one. That's right. So, so you know, uh, is, that a, is, it, is, it a, is it measurable? Is it important? Uh, that's another question. But I do think, I do think that often fresh can be, can be an advantage. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right there. Emily emailed that she always hated beets until she lived in South Africa, Southern Africa, and learned to cook beets by cubing them and just tossing a bit of vinegar over them. Mm -hmm. Somehow, the vinegar brings out the sweetness. She now loves beets, cooks the, the, that way, and she'll never go back, mm -hmm. <laughs> as a matter of fact. So sure. What is it about the vinegar? I mean, I think it, 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 it masks and cuts some of that astringency associated with the earthiness and reveals some of the sugar. And I think that's similar to what we were talking about with the onion. You know, the, the, the sugars are present in there, but you, you might not detect them when you're overwhelmed by something like the earthiness. And Jackie emailed to ask if you can transplant a beet. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It works really, really well. And uh, you, can, uh, you can produce little transplants just the same way you do it with other vegetables. Um, is full sun too much for them? No, not Aubrey at all. wanted to know our, our engineer because uh, they, their garden is full sun. Full sun is fine. I, I, the plant will do quite well uh, in cooler conditions, but sun is not an issue as long as there's adequate water. And uh, Kristen in Kiwani emailed to ask if the color of beets indicates their flavor and nutrients. T to some extent, the, the pigments have nutritional value. So, so there is some relationship between the level of red or yellow pigment mm -hmm. and the nutritional value. But by and large, the other nutrients are irrespective of the color, completely uh, different than the color. So when it comes to, I wondered that as well when I was thinking about the badger flame, which is really a beautiful yellow and, and with streaks of red through it. And I wonder, well, is that going to be the, as nutritionally valuable as uh, the other beet? Yeah, it'll have a lot of pigment in it. It's just that the yellow pigments, the yellow pigment and the red pigment are very, very closely related chemically to each other. They're just, they're just slightly different. Uh, but the badger flame is full of the yellow pigment, which has some really nice nutritional value. Yeah, and I guess if you've got your choice of uh, saying, well, I'm going to have a... Big Mac, or I'm going to have a beet. <laughs> no matter if it's red or if it's yellow, you're probably going to be better off with a beet. You are, and and it's interesting that you mention that, Larry, because in in New Zealand and Australia, they put a slice of beet on their burgers. That is a that is a thing there in New Zealand. Absolutely, and that's that's just something that is a cultural. Like we put a slice of tomato on a burger, they put a slice of beet. And so uh, they are probably much more culturally evolved than we are, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I would say so. Erwin <laughs> Goldman and Adam D'Angelo, our guest today from the University of Wisconsin Department of Horticulture. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network.
Thanks for joining us today for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here with my two guests, Erwin Goldman, professor in the Department of Horticulture at the UW-Madison. He's a plant breeder and runs breeding programs on carrot, onion, and table beet. And Adam D'Angelo with him, a student at the UW-Madison, just finished his uh, master's degree and has worked uh, and has been working with Erwin uh, on improving flavor and eating quality in the table beet. Questions for them, and, and you know, we've taken mostly questions about beet. I think we had a question about it, uh, onions as well, but uh, you can join in. We could probably figure out the answer to any vegetable question you might have at 1-800-642-1234. Email to ideas at wpr.org. Adam, I want to go to you right away because Erwin was kind of singing your praises here during the news break about sleeping in a beet field. (laughs) (laughs) So we, we became very interested in how beet flavor changes over time. And so that was both looking at it over the course of the season, but also over the course of the day. Uh, and that train of thought led to me sleeping in a beet field for a, for a couple nights uh, over the past couple years, <laughs> taking measurements of, of these beet flavors every two hours for an entire day. So you'd get up every two hours? Well, I never really went to sleep because I had to process the samples. So, you know, maybe the error in the uh, end of the samples are a little bit higher than the beginning. <laughs> I mean, is that not dedication to the yeah. research there, you know? Did you find any difference? Yeah, well, we found that the measurement we were using to measure sugars and beets, that actually fluctuates over the course of the day. So that showed that that's not, that may not be a reliable way to measure sugar and beets. Um, and that was kind of an important finding. But the other flavors stay the same throughout the day. <laughs> okay, no no difference, a null difference or whatever. Yep. <laughs> um, oh, my goodness me. Well, Erwin, you've got an email yeah, from I did. somebody. Uh, a listener, Robert, asked about the, 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 the statement was made on the show here that you plant a single beet seed and you can get multiple plants. And that is something that people always ask about. So I'm glad you brought it up, Robert. And that is, in fact, the case because the seed of the beet is actually an aggregate fruit. It's got multiple embryos in it. And when you put the thing in the ground, you put it in soil, it can produce multiple plants. Sometimes up to five plants can come from a single seed ball. So unlike a, unlike a corn seed, which will produce a single plant, this beet fruit can actually produce multiple plants. And so I occasionally get calls in the spring from gardeners who say, I planted 10 beet seeds. I've got 40 plants growing. It's a miracle. you got to come and see it. And, uh, in fact, that's just the, the biological nature of the seed. Uh, that, that is really cool. Um, Kristen and Kiwani emailed to ask if the color of beets indicates the flavor, their flavor and nutrients. And I, not really, I guess. The color is really independent. The colors are, are, have no taste associated with them. And the flavor compounds, as Adam pointed out, are, 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 are other things. And Kara emailed... Uh, to ask if beets are cold weather hardy, how early could they be planted in raised beds in the spring? Oh, you could easily put them out in April here, and they will do quite well. And they will go all the way into October and November. So they are very, they do very well in the cool weather. Andrew in uh, Hoka, Minnesota, we'll go to you next. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for calling. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. Uh, I remember reading in a book something to the such of if you're growing beets or carrots, 
in northern climate like we've got here and you winter them in the ground for harvesting them during the winter instead of harvesting them and putting them in the root cellar something about their sugar content increasing as a result of that i just want to know if you could second that or if i'm misremembering something you're absolutely right uh they do some cold sweetening and like 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 brassicas, uh, vegetable brassicas do that. Brussels sprouts, other vegetables do that. And that is the sugars that are in the foliage uh, concentrate themselves into the stem. And they'll, 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 as the cold weather comes in, you'll get a you'll get an additional concentration of the sugars. And so there is some cold sweetening there. Outstanding. Thanks, Andrew. I was thinking about onions occasionally in spring. I would find some onions. <laughs> growing up in this in the mm-hmm. uh, in the spring somehow survived the winter mm-hmm. or what happens there sure um, uh, uh, it, uh, there's a number of possibilities there but uh, they can survive uh, you can if they're well mulched if there's mm-hmm. a good covering some of these vegetables will survive now of course that onion is probably going to bolt be bolting in the second year it's a biennial mm-hmm. the beets a biennial the carrots are biennial so if something did overwinter in your soil if it did survive, it will end up a flower stalk in the second year rather than be something very edible. Hmm. Chris in Black Earth, I'm sorry, Chris in Black Creek, your turn. Thank you for calling. Hey, guys. A wonderful show as always. Um, when when I was a kid, my dad used to take us out, and after the machines went through the beet fields, he, he'd make us pick up all the beets. Well, guess what happened to our hands, right? You know, we... <laughs> We had a red man's hands, and I, I, I just had to comment on that. But, yeah, they were really good right out of the earth when you'd bite into them. And uh, another time, I know this is not part of the show, but we had these big cabbage fields, and us boys, I think there was five of us kids. We were eight, nine years old, and we were just munching on cabbage heads in in this farmer's field. He come. He came out of the side of the fence line out of the woods, and he's like, what are you doing, boys? And we're like, well, we're eating cabbage. He said, all right, just, he said, all right that, that's fine. Just don't eat it all. You know? <laughs> Chris, thanks for calling. Why not? Did you ever eat a beet right out of the field? Absolutely. All the time. All the time. And that's really what, that's really what we're trying to do is to make it so that you can eat them raw like that. Oh, uh, Chris, thanks a lot for uh, calling. Appreciate that call very much. Oh, my goodness. Adam, I, you know, I'm going to get off track here just a little because I know you're really interested in oh, a heck of a lot about pawpaws. Yeah, so pawpaws, maybe you guys on, the, on listening in may have tried them before. They're a native fruit to North America. They uh, taste like a mix between banana and mango, and they grow here with very little needs for pesticide or, or other care, nutrient inputs. So they're a really cool crop. They're just sort of hindered by the fact that you can't ship them to a grocery store. So uh, <laughs> you might see some breeding happening on those soon. Oh, so you're going to be involved in, in that. And you also do some work with um, nuts as well. I used to work with hazelnuts at Rutgers, so I, I really like the tree crops. I think it offers some cool, unique opportunities uh, to, prov- to provide some longer-term solutions to some of the problems we'll be facing in the future. We're getting some questions from folks who are interested in uh, this badger flame beet mm-hmm. that is, uh, if you're just tuning in, this is a, a beet that Irwin uh, and others, that de- Irwin was the primary person here, developed, uh, which is a... 
beet that doesn't have uh, that earthiness kind of taste that some people find objectionable. Apparently not a lot, given the callers today. But uh, it's a, a ye- when you cut it open, it's a yellow color with a, sort of a red flame running through it. That's, that's why it's called Badger Flame. And people are wondering, how do I get my hands on seeds? Uh, is it commercially available? It is. It's now, for the last few years, it's been commercially available through a couple of different seed companies. Uh, one of those is High Mowing Seed Company, based in Vermont. Another one is the Row 7 Seed Company. There's several companies online. If you, do an, if you do a Google search for it, you'll find seed, and you'll able to be able to buy small packets of seed and, and begin to try it in your own garden. So, and just if you type in uh, where can I buy badger flame Mm -hmm. seed, you will find it that way. And uh, all all the varieties that we plant breeders at the university develop, or many of them I should say, are uh, licensed out to the commercial seed industry through WARF, through the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. So that's a way that the university uh, hopefully brings back some revenue to support the kinds of activities that go on in our college. Uh, I think that's just great. Um, Somebody else is wondering, how how does genetics play in developing new varieties of vegetables? Boy, Adam and I can both take a crack at that one. You know, genetics is at the core of, of, of changing the populations of plants. That we, that, that's the work that we do in plant breeding. So we are actually changing the frequency of the genes that are present. And as a, as a, as a point here, in the case of the beets, we found that beets are making, through their genes, they're actually making the earthiness. So mm-hmm. the, the beets naturally have genes that produce earthy compounds like geosmin. Why? We have no idea. So in making the badger flame beet, we had to select for the forms of those genes that produce less earthiness. It's like uh, changing the frequency of the genes in the population and selecting for ones that produce low levels of earthiness. That's really what we were doing when we made made the badger flame. So one has to have some familiarity with how genetics works. I mean, plant breeding, how it's been done in one way or another for the past thousands of years has always been find two good plants and let them pollinate with each other. So an understanding of genetics really just gives us the tools to make better decisions about which parents we're going to let pollinate each other. And I think that's been the biggest part of it. Yeah, well said. Um, And um, let's see. Kara... Kara emailed, oh, and I think I talked about this already, wondering about cold weather hardiness, but mm-hmm. they are very very cold weather hardy. Uh, what are some problems people have when growing beets? Well, there are several diseases that are quite significant. Uh, one of them is a root disease called rhizoctonia. It's a fungus that can cause black uh, pockets to form in the roots. Another one is a, a foliar disease called Cercospora, which is a, a, an airborne fungus that causes uh, lesions on the leaves. Uh, and there are many other uh, disease and insect problems that growers can have uh, and gardeners can have with the beets. But, but I will say that, by and large, for the home gardener, the beet is going to be a relatively disease, probably a relatively easy crop to grow compared to others, partly because it's a very short season plant. You can grow it in 70 days. Yeah, that that makes a, a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. What are, uh, let's see, 
you work with both carrots and onions as well. I what do. kind of work are you doing in those areas? You know, we're interested in in some of the same things with carrot and onion. We're very interested in uh, we're very interested in culinary applications and flavor because ultimately these are plants that that people are interested in eating and in, in, on a regular basis. But we breed for disease resistance. We breed for quality factors. And recently, in the in, in all three of our crops, we've taken up a project to understand the genetic control of shape. Root vegetables are, are often spherical. The onion, you know, can have mm-hmm. different shapes. The carrot, of course, has many, there are many different kinds of shapes. We're trying to understand the genetic control of shape in, 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 so that we can get a better handle on developing specific market classes of these th- of these three vegetables. So consumers really care not only about flavor and not only about the way the thing looks, mm-hmm. but also about about shape. So do you ever get a round carrot? Absolutely. We have some <laughs> beautiful <laughs> we have some beautiful uh, the market class there is called Parisienne and they are they look like golf balls. They are fantastic. <laughs> And, and consumers, when they see, and this is something that I hope over time we'll be able to release to the public, but when people see these, they go crazy for them. We have, um, you know, we have also carrots that are uh, maybe, maybe the, the size of the palm of your hand, but they look like a little kind of a triangle, a little wedge. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful carrots. And some some of the listeners will have seen some of the more miniature squashes that are out there now. Yeah. This is the same idea. To make something that a consumer can 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 uh, appreciate this very unique shape. Gee, I wish uh, Jim Neon was, was listening in because he, <laughs> by this time, would have, though, a haiku of the beat. <laughs> he would. And Jim, uh, bless him, he's, he's down in Costa Rica building a greenhouse now to, to do some uh, tropical vegetable work. So maybe, maybe he's listening online. <laughs> well, he could just de- definitely be doing that. So one of the interests uh, that you have, Adam, and I did want to mention this, is uh, the role of of um, uh, the consumer social media relationship between food and sort of as somebody from a life sciences communication department, that piqued my interest right right away. Talk talk about what you're going at there. Sure thing. I mean, we're we're trying to ultimately do uh, food by the people for the people, right? So Understanding what people want is a really big part of that. So over the past couple of years, I've started filming videos about what we do here in the beet breeding lab and my research and other plant science topics and posting them online. And you can actually go look at those at uh, The Seed Scholar. That's on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Uh, and over the past couple of years, I, we've had over 2 million people watch videos about plant breeding and genetics, which I think is pretty cool. It's a nice community getting built up there. Um, and are there are there any um, beet fan clubs? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of people who really like beets, and and people also, you know, seem to get upset about the fact that we're making a less earthy beet. And I think that something that Erwin and I have been pretty uh, on the same page about is this is kind of like a gateway beet, we like to call it, right? So you're trying to get someone to try the first beet, and then they can go and explore a whole new class of vegetables. And I think that's what it's really all about, is getting more people to engage in the beautiful and fun and delicious world of vegetables. You know, and I was thinking about this. If uh, Are you finding uh, some restaurants using the Badger Flame? Because I would think if 
people are exposed in restaurants, they're going to be, they're going to like it, no doubt. Definitely. It's on the menu of places like sandwich or, excuse me, salad restaurants like Sweet Green, which are all over the country, which are selling fresh salads. And you can see the vegetable on the salad and you can see it there when you're or, when you're making up your custom salad. And so it is something that I think people will be interested in. And do you and you how do you prepare what, the badger flat? How that do you one's look? fresh. That one's gr- that one's just grated uh, or, or cut fresh and put on a salad. And that's the way I would eat it, and it's meant to be eaten raw. But when you roast that or grill it, it's it's also beautiful because those colors remain. And so there's no there's no harm in doing that. It's just that it provides opportunity for something that you could eat raw as well. Jeremy emailed that at one point some years back, someone gave him a huge onion, bigger than a grapefruit, mm-hmm. closer to cantaloupe size. And he knows it's from Scotland. He thinks it's from Scotland. Scotland. You wondering if you had an idea yeah. of a name of it? Or... There's a there's a show onion in England called Elsa Craig. I suspect that's what he got. Elsa is A I L S A Craig, and it's a, you know, the British love um, uh, vegetable and fruit ac- uh, these expositions where you see who can grow the largest one, kind of like mm. we would do at the at, at a state fair. And Elsa Craig is, is, is a historically uh, one of the best show onions for that reason. I was thinking of, uh, the, uh, of Pam Yonke, uh, a great friend and, and a great farm reporter uh, in Madison, uh, Midwest Family Broadcasting. And she has taken a number of trips uh, with farmers to Alaska mm-hmm. in summertime. And the... People there are, uh, who come from here and go there are absolutely amazed at these fairs where they're showing the size yes. of the vegetables. Well, they have that incredibly long-growing season, right? I mean, and not long-growing season, I say long day. Long uh, day. Short, short growing season, but very, very long day, 20-hour day, for example. Yeah. And <laughs> and she showed me some photos, and I'm telling you... Uh, it, it, the the size of melons and everything else is just absolutely yeah. amazing. So, your work now. What do you you know? What are, where where are you going? You you've got this badger flame. Yeah, I, I you know the p- part of it is diversifying the the vegetable marketplace to make to make more variety out there for people. Uh, whether it's a whether it's a home gardener or a consumer who might use a ve- taste a vegetable, use a vegetable that they'd never had before. So I think diversifying the, the the cultivars that are available. That's something that, you know, we're very interested in. Um, another thing that we found is people eat with their eyes. So a red beet is beautiful, but people really love the yellows that we've made. Now we have some that are pink. We have one that's a tangerine color. It's kind of a, we call, we, we, we it's a, we, we, we think we may call it tangerine. So we have some that have swirls. Uh, we have one that's called Blushing Not Bashful, which has kind of a pinkish hue to it. So I think part of it is creating things in the fresh market or farmer's market that people will get interested in and hopefully eat more vegetables. Cody emailed that it looks, uh, apparently Cody was trying to find a place to order the seeds for the Badger Flame season, and he's only, many of them are already out of seeds, and he can only find one <laughs> company 
uh, seeming to have him. He didn't mention the name of the co- company, but uh, he says order soon. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, that's another unfortunate thing about specialty crops is that they're, the, the supplies can be limited. But I do hope over time that uh, seed supplies will be bulked up. Well, this has been a great fun. And I do want to mention just the last 30, 40 seconds, Adam will be hopefully checking in with you because you've got a great adventure coming up. Yes, I'll be hiking the Appalachian Trail in just a couple of weeks. And that's going to, you're going to do the whole trail? Georgia to Maine. Three, how many miles? 2,200. <laughs> <laughs> that's a long walk. It's a long walk. Uh, and, and, and over about a three-month period or so? Uh, four to five months. Four yeah. to five months. So uh, we'll, we'll try to get Adam on the, <laughs> by phone every so often to report how he's doing. Maybe on our Wednesday, we do our outdoor environment shows on Wednesday. So we'll try, try to get him for that. But in the meantime, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Larry. Thank you for having us. It's a us. pleasure. <laughs> it's been, been a lot of fun. Erwin Goldman. Professor in the Department of Horticulture at UW-Madison, plant breeder, runs the breeding programs on carrot, onion, and table beets at UW-Madison. Adam D'Angelo just finished his master's degree, and before he begins a Ph.D., I think he's going to walk that trail, and uh, we'll be getting some reports from him about that as well. He worked on improving flavor and eating quality in the table beat. Boy, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you did as well, and I hope you'll stay with us uh, right through the rest of the afternoon. Uh, Just looking ahead Monday, Jesse LeGrew is back to talk about the risks of downloading software off the internet and other tech support scams. That's Monday at 11. Uh, In the meantime, thank you for listening, and please stay with us. Don't forget to join us for, um, for uh, tomorrow morning uh, when I'll be talking at the Garden Fest. I'm Larry Meehan.